Welcome back to the Arctic Together podcast. I'm your host, Carly, and I'm joined by my co-host, James Tempty. We are part of the Navigating the New Arctic Community Extension Office at Alaska Pacific University, which is based on the wonderful, traditional, and contemporary homelands of the Denina peoples. We thank you for joining us again. In episode one, part one, we learned about the Demumta or All of Us program, a program about transforming fisheries and marine sciences together. And now for episode one, part two, we are resuming our conversation with artists Kachung and Abayu for the intersection segment, a segment about the intersections of identity, art, culture, and the impact to community. We are then joined by two Indigenous scholars to discuss equity in research and working in relationship with community. Do you have any future projects that you're excited about or kind of what's what's up next for you? Well, there's always something happening. <laughs> Love it. Um, um, you know, the, the, the passion that we have for our artistic practices, you know, is what drives what drives so many of us artists. Um, absolutely. And um, so I have a, I have a couple of things, you know, right now um, I'm currently I have two big projects that I'm kind of just really pushing. Um, one is a dance project that I'm doing with um, the uh, community of Kodiak, and so it's we're bringing to, we're bringing um, people from each of the seven communities of, of Kodiak into Kodiak City, and and I work with them uh, on creating new dances. Um, for the island. So maybe doing that for, for the next couple of years. And then we have a dance festival that we're planning in April of uh, 2023. Um, and so it's really exciting. It's exciting to be able to kind of like create change um, and shift, um, shift things in communities. Um, and then there's another project um, that I'm working on called Rock Hawk. Um, one of the things that I've been really, you know, as a musician that's been in the business for almost 30 years, um, we realize and understand that there's rarely any opportunities for Indigenous artists, even one as badass as Bumiwa. Um, and, and so, you know, often when we go to festivals and places like that, we're like, we're like put on the like side stage, like, oh, there's the world music stage off to the corner or the Indigenous tent over here. And, you know, and, um, and, 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 you know, when we get onto like the big main stages, they're like, oh my God, you guys are so great, you know, kind of stuff. And we're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, 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 and so it's like, so when I, I'm, I'm now on this, um, I'm, a, I'm a board member of this organization called Western Arts Alliance, and there's a program called Advancing Indigenous Performance. And I'm the, I'm the chair of that, of that um, organization. And, um, and so I meet and talk with indigenous performers from all over uh, Turtle Island and Guam and 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 um, a lot of the like cult, the colonized space places that that United States have been to, and we talk about um, 
what it is to be an indigenous performing artist and like what those challenges are and what, you know, the limitations and all, and like in the spaces. And one of the things that we talked about was we just need to make art we need to make our own. And so um, I had been for years trying to uh, start an indigenous music festival. Um, and I propo I've proposed it in the past. Um, and there's been like little wins here and there. Um, like I got to credit the last name Heritage Center in Anchorage, Alaska uh, for, um, you know, being one of those yeses, like, yeah, let's do that. And, but it wasn't a festival. It was like, we, we just had, it was like indigenous music celebration day on a Sunday in November from 10 to four, which I'm like, yeah, that's not what I was talking about, but let's, that's a, that's a win right there. Uh, but it took going to Juno and, and this beautiful community, um, in the Auckland, and in the Shinket people and the Haida people. And I went and uh, was ha having a conversation with uh, the president of Shinket and Haida. And, and we, were, we, had just, we had just finished a show for them um, to kind of benefit the language program. It was a benefit show for them. Um, and I was like, well, what else should we do? Uh, should we do some more shows? And, 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 and he was like, what if we do a, festival and i was just like hell yeah <laughs> oh my gosh are you kidding me and so we went and, uh so right away i was like went over to the juno arts humanities council which is a local arts agency and i was like hey president peterson wants to do a indigenous music festival and and then i um was thinking more about it and like some of the amazing stuff that happens in, on in aquan and i was thinking about celebration which is held every two years um uh, in June, and which is a beautiful um, festival, a dance festival. And so I was like, what if we do an indigenous music festival on the odd years? So I don't have to plan it every year. <laughs> I could do it every two years, but on the odd years in the same weekend as um, celebration. And so we came up with that. And like about a week later, uh, we applied for our first grant and um, several months later we found out we got that grant and there was no stopping it after that and so we in 2021 um was the inaugural rock Ock festival and so that's kind of like my my thing that i'm gonna be working from from here on out for a long time i'm just gonna be putting on an indigenous music festival which i think hopefully will change the landscape of um festivals on in North America, um, because there are no indigenous music festivals. Isn't that crazy? There's no indigenous music festivals. That, that, yeah, that's crazy. I, I love what you're doing though. I think it, it really speaks to indigenous values and supporting one another. And I can see that also on your, the album that you released, you have other artists that you collaborate with, Akumatu, Allison. Yeah. Iron Nikolai. And so yeah. I can see this, like you just want to include people and support others. And I yeah, think that's, I wanted, that's I wanted that's to amazing. just explode. <laughs> I wanted to explode. That was the whole get-go from the beginning, man. My brother and I, Kishak and I, we, you know, we had this like, yeah, we were doing it for the language and for their dancing to perpetuate our culture. But we also had in the back of our mind that we wanted to become music moguls and like create this like <laughs> move, like create this movement of like um indigenous music in Alaska. We saw it in other places, right? In Canada has a huge music scene. Greenland has a huge music scene. Um, down in, in America, um, you know, like there's you know, Canyon Records, you know, they were selling millions of records, you know, I was like, 
I was like, let's do that in Alaska. Like we had this like thing that we were gonna like do this, and then we did it, and we we're like ah, rocking the stuff, and there was nobody. And like we were like, well, we're okay, because we thought we were like gonna blaze these trails. And it, but it is it's so exciting recently to have people like Akumatu, um, Arius Hoyle, Air Jazz, um, Byron Nikolai. Uh, you know, it's like to have these 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 young cats coming in into the music scene. I'm like, I'm gonna give them a platform. So and that's what Rock Cock is all about to give those artists a platform to be able to perform um, on a stage. Uh, for people that they probably never would get get a chance to be able to do that in in at that level, you know. So uh, you know, we had Witty Youngman um, perform, who's a Inupak uh, um, uh, singer songwriter, and she was just like, she was so happy and like was like she had so much fun. I was able to get several other gigs for her in Juno, and and then from that, like when it was televised, people saw it and they contacted us and like. Uh, it was a couple weeks later she was performing at another festival and that's what it was about yeah um how about you Apayu? do you have any projects that you're excited about that you're working towards um well first what i love about the indigenous music scene is <laughs> so years ago now robert gregory from bethel mad dog out these little mp3s i don't know how they were getting out because it was before like full-on data but i was in togiak visiting and i walked past ac store and there was a kid playing over in the big flooded spring puddle that was over there and the <laughs> the kids were singing they were like like poor me because he was singing about waiting for a check in the mail and he kept checking his p.o box and there was no check that was coming in so he's saying poor me my check's not here yeah robert mad dog gregory has like some of the best songs and those are that was from the 70s man that was he's an old school guy well, and it was so it was fun seeing it bring language back through song. Like if you get these catchy lyrics and beats um, to hear the language just kind of pop out naturally. Just fun walking mm. past AC, kids jamming out. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, it's funny, the, the whole COVID world switched my work. I've hardly done any painting I'm going to do a little painting event for the community here in Igiagic on Saturday. So it was the first time I had done any painting in 2022. Um, I had to come up with my little draft to show the participants what we we're going to paint. Um, otherwise, the work that I've done has been mostly illustration. And so one of the exciting ones that I just finished up, it ended up being very delayed through COVID because we started it in 2020. Um, and we just finished it here in 2022, but it was a project for the Bristol Bay Borough School District. And um, their grants lady wanted to bring in indigenous curriculum. And so she hired me to illustrate math story problems for their preschool students. So that was really fun and awesome and exactly what I wanted to see as far as change like as a mom of young kids I mm. I know that my time has passed I'm so long gone <laughs> but my kids that 10 years just happened so quick so whatever we could fill their minds with now 
is going to be the big change, you know, that's what it's going to be. Their, their energy is going to be so much more influential than mine at this moment. Um, so that was a cool one. And I got to illustrate another booklet for someone else's passion project. And he had a vision of indigenizing the school system over in the Bethel area. And so his idea had to do with uh, using yurts as the classrooms and kids needing to bring in firewood for their classrooms and hunting and trapping was part of it. So I got to just illustrate all of these different scenes of our way of life. And then the current illustrations that I'm tying up here are for Campfire and they are doing work, I think, over in the YK region also. And they they want to use them. Um, I'm keeping it open with them. I'm giving them a bunch of illustrations of our daily life, of subsistence activities, basketball, <laughs> NYO, mm-hmm. you know, those mm-hmm. super cultural activities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's what they'll be using for coloring pages and then maybe blowing up to do some of their own community murals, but just offering a template for them to start with. And then they could build on the illustrations as they please. Because that's another aspect. I don't want to just claim these illustrations and these scenes as my own. I would love for more artist occupations in our communities. So if the basic, you know, basic illustration can lead to a kid being motivated to add to it and see how that creative process sort of um, flows and that inspires them to work on bigger projects, I'd love that. You should do some NFTs with like Tundra Berries, a series of them. There you go. What's the NFT? <laughs> Non-fungible token. Get, whole, <laughs> yeah, get into the whole world of this like digital digital art and all that. Like it's it's blowing up like crazy. That's what the you know, yeah. And I'll I'll, I'll burn some Ethereum on that. NFTs. I'm so I'm so rural still. I'm catching up to all you Zoomers and. <laughs> 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 these acronyms <laughs> oh man yeah that's that's awesome that's awesome <laughs> you know i still don't really understand nfts you know cryptocurrency or any of that <laughs> um but one question we'd like to end this segment with is thinking about the future and the next generation after us or those who came before us you know our ancestors um, what kind of legacy do you want to leave for future generations? Man, it's a big question. <laughs> it, we don't have a word for future, you know. Um, but there's like to that time, there is like to a time. And I, I want to see a future where um, it's just normal. Everything is is our language is normal or normalized. It's like, it's not something, you know, um, that it, it's, it's tough. Cause I, you know, I grew up in a, in a time where we were trying to revitalize things that were being, that were suppressed and, 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 um, you know, banned, you know, our, you know, moms and dads being, beaten for speaking their language um it's not that far long ago right you know it's like everything was destroyed in so many things were destroyed in so quickly 
and but it's going to take a long time to build back up um and it's going to take a lot of hard work and and so i feel like the work that abayu and and myself and other artists in our way we're trying to make those efforts um to to be made and and to to be done and and there's been changes i've i've seen it there's you know in the last couple years there's been an, an indigenous pop culture where it's cool to be indigenous now um it's so beautiful to see the women wearing their pride on their faces with the tattoos um you know and on their gear you know wearing the native their native gear and like being proud of like who they are and being unapologetic about it and you know it wasn't that long ago where we were ashamed and hiding it um that was just a couple decades ago but the young people i see like now i feel so encouraged because i definitely see a change it feels like it feels different it literally feels different um you know, you had Quanta Chasing Horse blow up the Met Gala, you know, with reservation dogs coming out and Rutherford Falls. It's like it's indigenous people are seen in a different light in, an, in, in, a, in a whole new media that has never, ever been there. So it feels encouraging. It's just the beginning. Um, there's going to be so there's so much more that needs to happen um, um, to where I feel like we need to be. And so. Uh, I'm hopeful for the future. Um, and so like what I want to, when I want to see in, in the future for my kiddos, you know, they're just little right now. Um, you know, I have a three-year-old and a, and a five-year-old and, you know, I, I named them names that with our indigenous names, you know, and that was very, very, for me, very purposeful because I'm like, you know, your name is Anup, your name is Ayup, your name is Hulda. And 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 be proud of who you are and, and, and where you come from and your 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 name your your name. And so there's so much power in that, just decolonizing. Like it's a some, some you don't know what key it's gonna be um, that will open that door or make or create change. But sometimes it's in in as little as um, in the name. Yeah, thank you so much. Both of you guys, you bring so much to the Arctic, um, just and so much encouragement for others. And so thanks for being those like those beacons of hope and carrying on knowledge and creating new stories. Um, I think that's you know, it's just an honor to get to talk to you and um, to call you my friends. piano with my friends phone ringing off the hood. brother who's calling wants everyone to attend so we jump in a cab to take a look it was so great to hear about indigenous identity empowerment and love that is so grounded in community and then manifests through art and music and activism and how culture really drives creative passion and leaving a legacy for the next generations to come.
are so excited to welcome two Indigenous scholars in a roundtable discussion on community, equity, and what it's like to navigate these spaces in research and scholarship. Ani, and welcome Hannah and Margaret. It's so great to have you both join us. Uh, could you introduce yourself and tell listeners where you're from and your chosen degree program or your area of study? Sure. Um ang ang alagum ayaga asak dakok unangak akok atun ingiram tunadusi ilagan ang yachtakok um kiriram tunangin kugan ang yachtakok kawalangam tunangin kugan ang rarizak ilulam tunadusi ilan ang rarizak UAA ilan awazak atchikan naka ma atchikakak akok. Um, it's great to be here, everybody. Kagasakuk for having me. My name is Haley Hana Alarum Ayara Stepatin. I'm Unangach, and I was born and raised in my village, Akutan, or um, in Unangamtunu, we call it Achaninira. That's our place name, which means salmonberry bushes below it. Um, and I am Kiririm Unangach. Um, that's my tribe. I'm a Kiririm um, person. And I live in Kawalingan. Tanungan or uh, the lands of the Kalanich people right now in the village of Iluluk or Unalaska. And I work at UAA as, a, as an instructor of Alaska Native Studies. Um, I'm also a PhD candidate in Native American Studies at the University of California, Davis. Uh, I have a designated emphasis in studies in performance and practice. And um, I'm out here in Nunungam Tanungan on my homeland's waters uh, doing my PhD dissertation research right now. Hi, my name is Margaret Rudolph. My new name is Anamuk. Um, my family originally comes from King Island, but I grew up in Fairbanks and Anchorage. I am an interdisciplinary PhD student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I study co-production of knowledge, specifically working with Alaska Native communities on climate change research. Um, my Background's actually in permafrost engineering, and I went kind of this interdisciplinary route. And so that kind of leads me into, I guess, to what kind of influenced me in my research. Um, when I went to college, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, and I knew I wanted to do science in a way that was going to positively impact people. But I didn't really know that there's such things as like sustainability science and maybe some of these other things that really focus on actual science, um, usable science, those types of things. And so I went into engineering <laughs> and um, because it's sort of related, but I also really liked math. And so it kind of, it fit for a while. And then I started to study permafrost because it was just one of those things like permafrost is all around me growing up but I never really knew anything about it. And so it was just really fascinating to learn about permafrost, but there was still wasn't quite reaching the type of research I wanted to do, which is really working with communities and really, again, positively impacting people and uh, kind of wandered around a bit. And eventually I, I heard about co-production knowledge. I started studying it more. And it was something that kind of fit um, from a scientific point of view. And then kind of on the flip side too, I started also kind of through the same vein, looking at um, more, I guess, I, I, the way I kind of call it is science through indigeneity. 
it's science through your values. Um, another way to call it, some people call it like two-eyed seeing, which I know Carly also has written about. And so it's kind of like these two different layers, I guess, and aspects that I'm kind of curious about. Um, and so that's kind of what influences my research is wanting to do that type of work. And um, yeah, really wanting to partner with communities in doing science that in some ways will make a positive impact on them. And um, also too, just broadening participation. Uh, I feel like there's quite often when you're a PhD scientist that you're some hierarchical level better than other people. Um, sometimes that's how scientists act, but sometimes I think it's just how it's perceived. And I don't think it's the case. I think anyone's capable of being a researcher. I definitely think knowledge holders have equivalent expertise, even probably more expertise um, than a scientist who's PhD in something. And so I think that that intersection of where you have science and indigenous knowledge blending together in a meaningful way. Thank you so much, Hannah and Margaret. Um, Margaret, I really couldn't agree more. Like, I think the co-production frameworks or approaches like the, the two-white seeing framework really center equity and, and value. Um, even in my own research, I feel like the way that I have talked about two-white seeing, you know, seeing from one eye with the strengths of indigenous knowledge and the other eye with Western science and utilizing both eyes to see, um, you know, more holistically, I think these approaches are really centered around process and relationships rather than outcomes or specific deliverables. And for me personally, two-eyed seeing, I think, is just a way of being. It's a way of living. And it's who I am as a Anishinaabekwe scholar. And it's how I see the world. Hannah, I really, I really, really admire your writing about the lands and waters. And I love seeing your feed that is centered around subsistence and being on the land and living in reciprocity with non-human kin. Um, it's just super, super inspiring. For some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the term subsistence, um, how would you describe subsistence? So that's a great, great question. Um, it's kind of hard to give it a prescriptive definition um, that is suitable to all audiences. I feel like subsistence is something that is so personal and and also like culturally grounded. Um, and being down at UC Davis, I mean, thankfully, I don't have to be physically there anymore to finish my PhD. But when I was down there and I was serving on all these panels and conferences, it was funny how I realized that subsistence is such a unique word to Alaska uh, and particularly the North. Um, one of the reasons why I don't feel like subsistence is even a suitable word is because it's tied to um, legislation and these, these legal policies that seek to resourceify Alaska Native um, relationships to land and water and, and the environment and more than human relatives. Um, so I know that this word already has political baggage with it. Um, and it, it, if you if you look it up in like the Webster's Dictionary or, or online, it would say that subsistence is 
the minimal, doing the minimal amount of things you need to survive. But this is also where the definition is just not sufficient um, because it's for us, it's not doing the bare minimum. It's our whole way of life. It encompasses um, values and uh, protocols of respect and um, how to be in the world. Um, and it has all of all, all of our cultural teachings. So I would just say that to understand subsistence from an outside perspective is to understand the legal baggage that it has that, that comes with it from the Alaska Native land claims um, in the 70s and Anilka in the 80s, and then what it means for us to actively be subverting this term and rearticulating what subsistence means in Alaska Native context. So really, it's just the ways that we live in sustainability in a sustainable relationship with the environment and more than human kin that migrate and um, continue to return. Um, so it's this whole way of living, of, of survivance and thriving. Thanks for defining that. Yeah, the, the politics of subsistence, um, access to quote unquote resources or food are in fact like really political um, these are really essential to health and well-being and being able to thrive and live as a native person. Like you had mentioned, you know, being on the land is really healing. Being able to go out to fish or to hunt is healing to provide for your family. It not only fills your spirit, but it also fuels your language or connection to identity. Um, but access and abundance also impacts, you know, socioeconomics in many communities across the Arctic. And these are basic rights that are not only impacted by governance, but impacts of climate change, right? Um, Hannah, you talk more about this in a 2021 article with Indian Country Today called we don't exist out here without subsistence, which was very powerful testimony. Could you both maybe tell us a little bit more about your research? You know, how do you center equity while working across these political boundaries or power dynamics? Um, you know, different colonial constructs within society or even institutions like educational institutions uh, are working across knowledge systems. A great question. Um, this is something that's always at the center. Everything that I'm doing is thinking about power and inequities and privilege. And I, I recognize that as a PhD candidate and a, an instructor in the university and in the institution that I have different privileges than my um, non, you know, institutionally academic counterparts. Um, so for me, um, this work and this research is an act of epistemic justice. And what that means for me is that I'm centering indigenous knowledges that have oftentimes been marginalized or completely left out of academia. Um, and it, it has to do with power. So this is a question of power and equity and access. Um, so when I'm working with my community, which is what I'm like entrenched in right now, and I love it, it's, it's like the best thing that I could possibly do. I'm constantly thinking about the legacy that research has had on our people. I think especially about um, <clears throat> Dr. Linda Tuivai-Smith's book, Decolonizing Methodologies, 
on the first page, I think it's on the first page. She says that research has been a dirty word for our communities. And it has. Um, I, I think about that when I'm with my community out here and their only like association of researchers uh, from institutions coming here to these villages is to extract. And it's to place Unangach peoples and our knowledge as inferior and as these systems of knowledge production in the academy as superior and um, thus authorities on you know, knowledge, but that's not the case. Um, Dr. Tuivai Smith and other scholars in indigenous studies like Diane Millian and many, many more assert that indigenous communities are researchers, capital R researchers and capital T theorists in their own right. And we always have been. We've always had knowledge systems. We've always been researchers and we've always been theorizing. We've always been doing these things. They're just not recognized in the ways that um, academic institutions tend to recognize or uh, understand knowledge. So this is how like, I, I think of my work as epistemic justice because I'm only ever citing indigenous sources and indigenous scholars and indigenous knowledges in my work. Um, that's been a really, really critical key part of my research is um, thinking about the power that citation practices have and knowing that citation practices reproduce power through the continued use of um, certain people's names in your work. So I think it's such a critical part of my work to um, research, you know, and draw from sources that to me feel good um, to represent and be the things that are holding up my research. And the things that are holding up my research are my community. Um, so in, in this sense, you know, my community, and this is something that Dr. Jessica Ulrich said to me last week, she said to us on the panel, my community gave me my PhD. This reasserts that, that they're the ones who have the knowledge and they're the ones that have the power. Like I wouldn't be able to get this, this PhD without them. Um, and so I think about um, my approach to research as one um, that understands the historically extractive, exploitative and authoritarian types of research from outsiders who, who come here to Unangam Tunangan who then write books as authorities on and about Unangam peoples yet lack an Unangam perspective. Um, and I think about switching that approach to a very intentional with, by, and for approach, which is something that Sonia, Dr. Sonia Adelay asserts in her research as an, as an indigenous archeologist is working with, by, and for Alaska native peoples. Um, and I'm also um, being really intentional about upholding Dr. Eve Tuck's call to suspend damage-centered narratives of our people. So this means that I'm writing the desire-centered stories um, that people want to tell while also being a fierce protector of Unangach knowledges and not just sharing, you know, our, our secret protocols or these, these, way, these things that are really spiritual or really cosmologically significant with just everyone. Um, so I'm also thinking about what it means to publish um, my work out there and um, how to protect the voices of the people who, have, who are giving me my PhD. Um, so I guess I would just say that um, when, I'm, when I'm working with my community too, I think about accountability, um, that I have an accountability to my community. This is how I'm, how am I actively not being extractive from them? Is that 
anytime we sit down to visit, like I'm not even using these interviewing methods that social sciences would say that I need to use. I'm visiting with my community in unstructured, impro improvisational ways based on the Unangoch method of Gidl to visit in a way that feels comfortable to them. Um, that doesn't feel like I'm just going to come in once, record their voices, extract, write their words as my own and take credit for what they're saying, but rather be in constant open relationships and in communication with them upholding native research sovereignty. They have sovereignty and self-determination of their voice and their words in my work. Um, it's just as much theirs as it is mine, which is something that the Academy doesn't like to acknowledge. Like they like to think that these books that we publish or these articles that we publish are uplifting one person's voice. And while individual self-determination is significant in indigenous communities, it's just not how I'm, I'm getting my PhD, right? It takes a whole, it's taking, the villages of Unalaska, Nikolsky, and Akutan, and all of the people I'm able to visit with in, in Anchorage and diaspora there to be able to get this, this PhD. So um, I'm thinking about reciprocity. What can I give back? How does my work give back to my community and not just take? And I'm thinking about my responsibility to fiercely protect Unangoch knowledges. That's an incredible project that you have and just the way you're going about doing it out of respect and honoring um, the community is, is, is really fantastic. Um, Margaret, would you mind telling us about your research? For co-production knowledge, I think it, it's a definitely a jargon word and it's an emerging kind of field that's happening around it. But I think what's coming to consensus is that co-production knowledge is really about partnership. It's about having community partners that have decision-making power equivalent to the researchers on every step of the research process. And so it is this shift in power dynamics that I find really interesting that is happening in the broader research world. And I think it's something when you talk about partnership does kind of make it a bit more not so jargony um, than co-production knowledge. Um, there's a lot more to it in the field, but the essence, it's about partnership and kind of shifting that power and um, yeah, and I think for me, it is, I guess, something I forgot to mention in my intro is also where I work to, I work part-time for um, ACAP, which is the Alaska Center for Climate Assessment Policy, which is in the International Arctic Research Center, IARC, at UAF. And so with them, it is a lot thinking about climate adaptation and thinking kind of critically about science and policy um, that support or create barriers to that. And so with kind of that work, a lot of my, my dissertation research has kind of ended up being very like high level, thinking about methodology and writing about it, um, specifically more targeted to scientists to be a bit better in their, their processes. And so it is with ACAP, I'm looking at how we evaluate co-production knowledge projects from synthesizing a lot of different literature, including um, indigenous methodologies, indigenous evaluation, co-production knowledge, boundary spanning, science of teen science, all these different elements that kind of wonder what makes a project successful and from very different difference in perspective and kind of talking about, you know, it, from that mindset, how do we evaluate a project? What is considered success? And um, then kind of the other part with ACAP 
there's another researcher as ACAP ILI Herman, who's also an indigenous scholar, and she's looking at workforce development within climate adaptation. And so kind of partnering and taking that bigger picture too is thinking about those people who span the boundaries. And so there's another term that comes from very related literature to co-production knowledge called boundary spanners. And again, this is from a very like Western framework, but it is those people that kind of span the boundaries, you know, from communities to institutes. And so kind of my work is more broadly, not just the workforce development side, but the, you know, the researcher side, community leaders, um, a whole bunch of different kinds of people, liaisons that end up spouting that gap and like, who are they? How do we better support them to do their work? You know, can we change education programs maybe within Alaska to help better support Alaska Native students so they could go back to the communities and do science and research? And so all those different elements kind of coming together with kind of my hat with ACAP. And then the other part, I am one of the three Indigenous liaisons to the Food Sovereignty Working Group. And the Food Sovereignty Working Group is a growing kind of group of Indigenous people, whether they're researchers, community leaders, um, also allies within that group, and really thinking about research processes and how we how we can use research to impact policy to support indig our Indigenous food sovereignty. And specifically, my role within that is looking at the science part of it, specifically looking at how we improve Arctic observing to better support Indigenous food sovereignty. And through that kind of some of my research in that is looking at perceptions of success. And so I did focus groups on both, both in the sense to highlight that it's difficult to do this work because quite often, you know, you have scientists approaching how they do science as they normally would, but that quite often can be extractive and not necessarily beneficial for communities. And so kind of highlighting that aspect as well as sort of have, trying to have a unifying element um, between the Food Sovereignty Working Group and this also this other group um, who was looking at Arctic observing and trying to develop an overall framework of how we actually have a better framework moving forward in how we do Arctic observing. And so it's kind of, I guess, a lot there. I've also, um, with the Food Sovereignty Working Group, one of our, our big elements is you know, how we center communities is looking at the co-management and other types of indigenous-led initiatives and spending the time to learn what they're already doing because they're already doing so much. And so sometimes you look at that like, well, what can even research do? And so it is just spending time learning because quite often that's when research questions do come up, you know, like they actually have questions or they have something they're trying to advocate for that maybe needs, unfortunately, at this point, a scientific filter for it to be upticked by management regulation groups of whatever that means. But also it's just to having climate change questions because the environment is changing, you know, and two, there's a lot of pollution. So what is that? How does it all work together? And so it's kind of, yeah. I think for me, the way I center community is just spending a lot of time building relationships and partnerships with people and understanding what they're doing and thinking about how I support that. 
Otherwise, I think you see a lot of scientists, especially with NNA, and I think this is probably one of the biggest criticisms, is that they already have in mind what they want to do. And so they're going around trying to find a community, but quite often that is just, you know, trying to hammer a square peg in a round hole. It's never going to work. It needs to come from the community. And so if you're a scientist, you know, spending the time to understand what the community needs, and that takes a huge effort to do this, is kind of the better way to do it. Yeah, thanks for sharing more about your work. And thanks for sharing that we have the knowledge as, you know, Indigenous scientists, the knowledge of how things are changing is found within communities. Community concerns are what should be supported, they're what should be funded, and solutions must come from working together. And it's really great to hear about the work that ACAP is doing, you know, building up a workforce, building capacity and technical knowledge through um, community training or education. And I think that youth are a big part of the picture, right? You know, they're the ones who are going to inherit the changing Arctic. And, you know, as an Indigenous scholar, do you have any advice for youth in navigating these academic spaces or institutions? Yeah, I think in a similar vein is reading critical methodologies or decolonizing methodologies is really important. I think um, just it's just kind of the advice kind of going to that too is it's very it can be very difficult to read when I started reading it I definitely already had the identity of a scientist and I often felt like it was very tokenizing of science but the flip side too the way I my scientist identity felt tokenized at the same time similar to what Helena was talking about was just the tokenization and the harm too that Indigenous people feel like when reading your literature. And so it is kind of learning that and developing that, that critical thinking in order to just do better. And at the same time, I feel like reading critical methodologies even still has really just made me a better scientist. Um, and so I think it's, it's immensely helpful um, tool to read, but I think Something also I've talked to about with other indigenous scientists as well is that it's a bit frustrating because there's still a lot of the way people talk about it is that you can either be indigenous or a scientist, that you can't be both. And it's very frustrating. And, um, and so it kind of, if you are indigenous, I think also too seeking out Indigenous scientists and their literature, because I think it's it's also very rich. And I think that's, you know, I was after hearing a lot of from classes and reading that critical methodologies, it was definitely like, well, there's a lot of problems and not a whole lot of solutions for me, I felt like, until I started reading um, literature from Indigenous scientists. And that also includes like two-eyed seeing frameworks and kind of those ways forward. But I think you need to kind of do a bit of both. I kind of feel like the way my work is, is a bit of balance between being critical and then balancing that with like being creative and being indigenous and kind of being creative, I guess, from a place of being indigenous. And so it's a bit of this balancing act between the two because it's just kind of where we're at, I guess, in academia, it's something... I also read a lot and listen to a lot of 
anti-racism podcast. And I just really appreciate kind of those narratives as well, because it is fundamentally about people trying to kind of have their own identity and express themselves in a system that won't allow them to kind of fully express themselves how they want to. And so it's, it's, I find I find such deep connection to that narrative because it's something I feel like I'm experiencing in academia and being an Indigenous scientist. Thanks so much, Hannah and Margaret, for joining us today. To learn more, check out the links in the podcast show notes for more resources on community engagement and their research. That is all we have for this episode. Be sure to check out the resource guide in the podcast show notes for more information on our speakers, more content, and links to various readings and pieces mentioned throughout this episode. Our next episode will focus on different topics and different geographic regions in the Arctic. Big thank you to our guests for their time, and thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to the first episode of the Arctic Together podcast. The music featured in this podcast are from Gudrun's album, Mew. Full songs are available on all streaming platforms. The NNA Community Office is supported through a cooperative agreement with the U.S. National Science Foundation. You can learn more about the office at nna-co.org. My first Alaskans My first Alaskans I love you